My guest today, I've been looking forward to interviewing for a while. He's a brilliant guy, does so much for other people, and he's very modest, so he's not going to like me saying this, but he's like a superhero to me. Sorry, Michael. He's a physician, an undergraduate and graduate professor of pediatrics, public health, and public policy at the University of Texas at Austin, an author, and a serial entrepreneur dealing with public policy, public health, and business for the public good. He was a presidential leadership scholar named by Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. He's a member of Mensa and is the executive director of the Impact Factory, a hub for social innovation, entrepreneurship, and service learning. Please welcome Dr. Michael Hole. Michael, how's it going? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. Hey, nice to see you too. Nice to see you too. And thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my honor. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, great. Great. Well, hey, Michael, let's jump right into this. What do you do? (laughs) Well, I'm a husband and a dad, first and foremost, but my rest of my time is spent as a physician and a professor and an entrepreneur at the University of Texas at Austin. All right. That's a lot. And but one thing you've always been passionate about, you mentioned being a physician and a professor, but also an entrepreneur, but a lot of that is entangled and you've always been passionate about bridging racial, political, and socioeconomic divides in the U.S. So what initially got you involved in that? Well, if I may, I'll tell you a story about a little girl I met several years ago who highlighted to me how very entangled all of society's issues can be. Um, And as someone who took an oath as a physician to improve people's health, it was important to me to look outside of the traditional path as a physician. So several years ago, a little girl came into my office when I was a medical student who was brought there by her kindergarten teacher. And the teacher had noticed bruises on her arms and legs that day at recess. And so instead of letting her get on the bus, because she was worried that the little girl might be uh, facing abuse, she brought her to our clinic. And when she got there, and I'll never forget, she had this little, little Cinderella pink and purple blanket that she would throw over her head as I was trying to look in her mouth and check her ears and listen to her heart. And we quickly found when she got there that in addition to those bruises, she had bleeding gums and some recent weight loss and some swollen lymph nodes and all the telltale signs of childhood cancer. In particular, she had ALL or acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is childhood's most common type of blood cancer. Until the 1960s, by the way, ALL was a death sentence for children. And then we discovered this drug that today, unless you're poor, has really great cure rates. Mm. The backdrop when this little girl was diagnosed is that her father was incarcerated and her mother was working two jobs to make ends meet and they weren't meeting. She was behind on her utilities bill. So her electricity kept getting shut off. She was behind on her rent. So her landlord was on her case. She didn't have enough money to fix her broken down car. So she was often relying on public transportation and as a result being late to her two jobs. And so her boss was on her case. And to make matters worse, the pediatric oncologist, the cancer doctor for the little girl, rightly so, mentioned that little Chloe would be better able to tolerate the chemotherapy and fight off the cancer if she was better nourished, which meant fresh fruits and vegetables instead of the canned foods and fast foods that they were accustomed to. So fast forward a couple of months, 
this little girl's mom made a heart-wrenching decision to send her to live with relatives while she took on a third job in the United States to make ends meet. And when she was there, the little girl sleeping on that very same Cinderella blanket on a crowded floor with two other families of four caught a preventable infection and she never made it to first grade. So as a young future doctor at the time, that really broke my heart, as you can imagine. As a dad today of a little girl, it breaks my heart even more. And I tell it not to be a downer here at the beginning of of our interview, but, but more to highlight how very much it matters whether or not people have enough money in their pockets or access to healthy food or access to safe housing or transportation or electricity, all these things that I think some of us take for granted. And certainly in the medical field, we don't think about impacting people's health, but certainly do trickle downstream to the bedside and cause suffering in the people that I care for. Yeah. Wow. And I don't know if you started this before, but you, you have the Children's Health Express where you help families that don't have insurance. Was that before this incident or after? So the Children's Health Express is a program out of Dell Children's Medical School here in Austin, Texas. One day a week, I'm a pediatrician on board this mobile unit that travels to homeless shelters and food pantries and other places looking for and caring for the hard to reach, high risk, most vulnerable families in the area. So most all of them are uninsured or underinsured. Many of them are experiencing poverty, often experiencing homelessness. And so as you can imagine, Adolfo, it's, it's my very privileged window into the struggles that families face in our local neighborhoods, as well as the programs and policies that are trying to mitigate those struggles and whether or not they're working. So as an entrepreneur, it's a very unique opportunity to come alongside the people actually facing the problems we're trying to solve and build solutions with them to improve their health and economic well-being. Yep. All right. Now, besides Children's Health Express, like I said, serving families without insurance, you've also founded and advised and worked with some amazing companies. From that to you started Street Cred, which helps families file taxes and build wealth while they're waiting in the hospitals, which is amazing. Good Apple, Early Bird, Main Street Relief, Big and Many, and others. Can you talk about some of these amazing companies and some of the impacts that they're doing? Oh, thanks for the kind words. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in each of those organizations, there is a huge, energetic, dedicated team tackling some of these issues. So it's not just me. And often, in particular with Good Apple and Early Bird and Big and Many, these are student entrepreneurs. Right. Really leading the way. So it's my privilege to come alongside them and try to help them scale up their good work. I'll talk about Street Cred because it was one of my earliest startups. I was an intern at the Department of Federal Affairs at the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I was tasked by the president at the time to look at the various anti-poverty programs in the United States and which ones were having the biggest bang for the buck on child poverty rates, which we knew were impacting children's health. And it turns out, to my surprise, that tax credits, which is something I knew nothing about, were having the biggest impact in both rural and urban settings. And so I came back from that internship understanding that taxes, which I don't even know at the time if I even filed for myself yet, <laughs> were, were ultra important to the lives and livelihoods of the families I was caring for. And so I started asking patients, do you do your taxes? How much do you pay for them to get them done? Do you get monies back as tax returns? What do you use the monies for? How much money do you make? Some of these questions that I think if I were to ask somebody on a street corner, they might say, that's a little invasive, sir. No, thank you. But one of the 
beautiful things about health systems is that folks trust us. We ask about sex and drugs and a whole host of other very sensitive topics. Why not ask about money if we know that it makes a difference to their health? And so fast forward a few months and I had this mother come into my office with her newborn and toddler. And I asked her these questions and she said, you know what? It would be great if you could help me get my taxes done for free because I've been paying for them for several years. And so we sat there in the office and we got on Google and we searched to find a free tax preparation center at the time in Boston, which is where I was living. And I sent her off and she came back a couple of weeks later and she told me how she had taken two buses and a train across town to get to this place with her newborn and toddler, by the way, which is a feat in and of itself, as we know, as parents of young kiddos, only to find, unfortunately, that the place was closed because it didn't have budget apparently to update its website from year to year. And so it wasn't open when she got there, but she was tenacious and she went back the next week only to find that she didn't have the right paperwork. And so instead she said, you know, forget this. I'm going to go to that H&R block in my neighborhood that has the fancy advertising and commercials I've seen, and I'm getting my taxes done there. And she, and she asked me a question, which is really the reason why we started street cred in the first place, which was that, you know what, Dr. Mike, I waited on you for 30 minutes in the waiting room today why don't we just do my taxes for free while I'm here? And so that was the origin story for street cred, which does people's taxes, make sure they get tax refunds, opens up savings accounts, gets them financial coachings to build budgets and credit wealth, all while they're in this trusted frequent space of health clinics and hospitals in our country. Wow. That's great. That's good. I love it. I love all this. And now, even before this, that you began your career fighting child trafficking and domestic violence. You then led some campaigns to help fund a new elementary school in Uganda and an orphanage for children in Haiti after the huge earthquake that they had. It's like a superhero with all the things that you do. Can you talk about some of these things that, that happened and some of these that you things that you did in your career? Well, absolutely not a superhero. No. Uh, and I appreciate you saying the nice things about the work. There's been a lot of stumblings along the way and learnings to be had. So I think what might even be more appropriate is to say that a lot of this passion for this work it wasn't something that I was necessarily born with. It was, I think like all of us, we see things in the world that we want to be better and we try to figure out how it is that we can tackle these problems. For me, I was inspired by my parents. My dad was a undercover police officer for 27 years for the Indiana State Police, and he was an undercover detective in the KKK rallies. So important in taking those down. He was buying stolen cars and stolen vehicles. His specialty actually was as a hitman, if you will. So he would meet with people who were wanting to kill off somebody and he would get them to supply a check and a gun and, and then they would come and bust them. And so from a very young age, I was, I, and I still do look up to my dad very much and have, I think because of his example, been inspired to serve the public and to serve community. My mom, the most compassionate and kind person I know, was a volunteer caretaker for the elderly and dying in my community. So there's multiple occasions where I can remember going with her and watching her comb the hair and hold the hand and sing songs to these people at the end of their life. And that was, again, another example for us of, of our faith, Christian faith, but also this idea that there is purpose and service to the most vulnerable. And so anything I've done in my career, anything I've studied to try to do in my career has been uh, in hopes of honoring uh, their legacies um, and, and the legacies of the people that I've had a chance to meet. Um, I mean, like that story with street cred, this organization wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for that mom's really good question about why don't we do her taxes while she's in the waiting room. 
right. so much of the work that I do has come from the people that we're trying to serve. And I think that's where, at least in my experience, the most elegant solutions for these problems come. They come from the folks actually facing the problems we're trying to solve. Nice. All right. So this is just basically what you knew you grew up in. You grew up seeing that helping others and helping the vulnerable people and, and talking about that. I want to see if we can talk about the impact factory. From what I see, it seems like basically like an accelerator for entrepreneurs to develop solutions for social issues, but also workshops for students and, and, and other things. And can you just talk a little bit about the impact factory? Oh yeah, I'd be happy yeah. to. So uh, the impact factory is this engine for social innovation, entrepreneurship, and service learning at the University of Texas at Austin. So we're a collaboration between Dell Medical School and the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And we're on this mission to measurably improve health and economic opportunity for vulnerable populations in the United States. So we have four pillars of work. One is prototyping. That's just to say, as students or faculty or members of the community have ideas for social solutions, we wanna help them get that idea to launch. Good Apple is an example of one of those programs. We have an accelerator, as you mentioned, which is to say, as we identify evidence-based programs, wherever they may be, inside Texas or across the United States, how do we surround those entrepreneurs with the resources they might need? Human capital, potential funding, community partnerships on the ground to come and do their good work right here in Central Texas. The third is teaching. As you mentioned, workshops, experiential learning courses that students can take to learn the fundamentals of innovation and entrepreneurship, impact evaluation, for example. And then the final is capacity building, which is as we identify evidence-based best practices or data that we uncover, we want to be able to share that not just with the academic community, which is important, but also with policymakers and people in positions of influence who can help us scale up that good work at a faster pace. That is incredible. I love it. I love it, Michael. So when did you start this again? To tell you the truth, the Impact Factory's work has been ongoing really since I arrived in Texas in around 2017. Oh, okay. The official launch publicly was in January of this year. Oh, so nice. Some of the startups that have been a part of it were ongoing, but formalizing the structures, working on economies of scale for these programs, that's been more recent as of January. All right. Now, I know you're very modest, but just wanted to uh, say, you know, five years ago, Forbes named you to America's 30 under 30. Can you just talk a little bit about how you found that out and just how you felt when that happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just made the cut because I think I was 29 at the time. And <laughs> so I felt, felt very fortunate. You know, I was actually on vacation with my parents and soon-to-be in-laws and fiancé and her brother at the time. And I remember getting an email that basically said, welcome to the Forbes 30 under 30 community. Uh, It was a huge surprise, a huge honor, of course. And I think to be with you, as I mentioned before, so many of the programs that I've worked to start have been as a part of teams. And so I think it also, as humbled as I was, it was also a, a stark reminder of how many people in this country get up every day with little thanks or recognition, never mentioned on any sort of list like that and still dedicate their lives to making the lives of others better. So it certainly has been a a great boost in terms of ability to seek fundraising or scale up some of these programs that we're working on. But also want to be clear that it's a recognition, I think, of of all the folks that are on those teams, as well as the people that we serve, as I mentioned, who give us the ideas, if you will, and, and come alongside us to build some of these solutions. 
Yep. Yep. Right. Now, you mentioned a huge honor two years ago. Also, the President Bill Clinton and George W. Bush named you as a presidential leadership scholar. Can you talk a little bit about that? And that is an amazing feat as well. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> another just remarkable, unexpected, undeserved opportunity uh, to get to know not only Presidents Bush and Clinton, but the first families, many of the folks who worked in those administrations, other industry leaders who come and teach us, the 60 scholars every year, lessons in leadership. And we learn things like decision-making and the importance of having crystal clear values so that you can look through that lens when difficult decisions come your way. We learn things like vision and strategic communication, strategic partnerships, persuasion, negotiation. The thing I'll say is that it gave me this deep appreciation for heritage in the United States, a deep belief in the American people, and in particular, the bright future that I think our country has. More than anything, I was just blown away by the fellow scholars that were a part of my cohort, people from all walks of life from all over the country who had you know, every demographic represented, very diverse, including across the political spectrum. And there were several inspiring examples of people who I think from behind the walls of social media or any other barriers that we put up probably would never have been friends and certainly would never have worked together in the way that they did. And yet there was something special about this program and seeing presidents from different parties come together and be friends. That was really inspiring, especially in these really divided times in our yeah. country that gave me a lot of hope. So I can't say enough good things about that program in particular. It was, it was life-changing and in many, many ways. And I wish I could do it again. Wow. Wow. That is great. Well, hey, Michael, you mentioned you're a physician, a professor, a serial entrepreneur. Can you talk about what a typical day looks like for you? <laughs> it's on the day of the week, to be frank with you. So I, I see patients one day a week. I teach one day a week and the rest of my time is spent as an entrepreneur. To give you a broad overview, I get up in the morning, I drink that coffee, take a shower, uh, usually read a bit, answer any urgent emails. I get my little one-year-old ready to go to grandma and grandpa's house where she spends. And then I dive into, at least during the pandemic, the Zoom world, which used to be in-person meetings with staff, student entrepreneurs, potential funders, co-founders of some of these organizations that you've mentioned, community partners. If it's not my clinical day, I'm usually following up on patients' labs that I might have ordered or imaging and then calling those families back with the results and letting them know about the next steps. I might be grading some papers along the way <laughs> from the courses that I teach. We usually end around 6.30 in the evening and my wife and I will take a walk. We'll go and get our little daughter, Evelyn. We'll make some dinner. Maybe we'll go down to Lady Bird Lake uh, here in East Austin. And then we uh, play with our little girl and get her to bed and maybe read a book and I'll sneak some ice cream when my wife's not looking and then we'll, we'll head to bed. Nice. <laughs> nice. All right. I like it. And you mentioned Austin. So you've been all over the U.S., right? So you went to medical school in Stanford, correct? Right. And your MBA there as well. And right. your residency and fellowship at Harvard on the East Coast. I didn't do a fellowship, but I was. A oh, resident. okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. All right. Got you. All right. Now, to be successful in all these businesses that you're doing and the impact and, and advising a lot of these 
entrepreneurs and teaching, can you talk about just skill sets and characteristics that are needed for you to just be successful in what you do? Good question. I'll tell you about a bunch of things that I do that aren't helpful. All right. that works. <laughs> I'll break it down in general, and then I'll talk about in each of those jobs because they're a little different. I would say in general, and these are lessons hark back to the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, being a person of, of integrity and decency and having a clear understanding of one's values is crucial in anything that you do. I think in my job in particular, it's important to be an effective communicator, to be comfortable with public speaking. I do that often. You got to be comfortable with being persuasive and being a good negotiator, a strategic in the partnerships that you develop. I think as a, as a physician in particular, it's no surprise that I find those physicians who are most compassionate to be the ones that I want caring for, for me and my family. Being a physician takes a lot of organization skills. There's a lot of things to follow up on, a lot of moving parts. And so keeping a long list of, of to-dos is always important. As a teacher, I think being prepared is something that I've learned is, is absolutely necessary because the students come with remarkable insight and questions and being willing to say when you don't know the answer. And so having a sense of humility, I think is important as well. As an entrepreneur, uh, one of my core values of creativity is needed in, in everything that we do, a, willing to take, a willingness to take risks. I have a thick skin because people don't believe in maybe the, the new idea that you have or the funder doesn't want to give you the monies that you need. And also being a good listener, I think is really important too, because as we've talked about, so many of the best ideas come from the customers or the potential clients that you might have and, and a willingness to take that feedback to iterate on your solution, to go back to the drawing board, if you will, and come up with something better because of the feedback is, is really important to move the needle on some of these big, hairy social problems that we're all eager to solve. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned one of those you mentioned is uh, public speaking. Is that something that you were always good at or something that you had to work at? Definitely something I've had to work at. There's certainly a learning curve, you know, something that becomes easier over time times that you do it. I try to make a habit, although I've cut back a little bit since I've been a new dad, of saying yes to public speaking opportunities. Not necessarily because I want to do it and because it's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, but mostly because one, I think that the stories of my patients and, and this work needs to be told, right. but uh, also because it's a good practice. And I think I get more comfortable over time. And there's lots of great little tricks of the trade. I have a wonderful speech coach back from my days in Stanford Business School, who I regularly lean on for advice. All right. And then you also mentioned part of it was grant writing, or, or I don't know if you actually do grant writing is something you do, but trying to get grants and, and fundraising. Is that a big part of what you do as well? It, it, it depends on the project. So okay. in any of the work that we do, we try to develop revenue generating, self-sustaining business models that allow us to then move those profits into various social impact programs. In other instances, when that's a bit harder, then yes, it becomes a philanthropic investment where we might ask an individual to invest or we might ask a foundation to consider us for a grant. So that's certainly a part of the work that we do. Got it. Okay. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love taking care of families. I love the children that I get a chance to meet and learn from. They're so inspiring in their bright, unrestricted hopes for a better tomorrow. And so I, I find a lot of inspiration from that. 
at the university in particular, I get a chance to work with students who I would argue in a similar way are going out and in alignment with the University of Texas's motto, what starts here changes the world. They've taken that to heart. And so it's hard not to be optimistic and hopeful in working with tomorrow's leaders in that way. And then I would say the families that we serve are inspiring in their resiliency and the struggles that they have faced in contrast to my very privileged upbringing gives me a lot of reason to take it to heart that I have to use my time and talents and networks to try to make the world a little better uh, and do what I can to, to build these programs and, and hope that we see improvements in people's health and well-being. So there's a lot of parts of my job <laughs> that I love. I love the diversity of it too. And the fact that I get to do these different things, although they're in practice different, they, they fit together pretty well too. And so I, I definitely think that I'm a better entrepreneur, for example, because I have a chance to see patients every week. I think I'm a better teacher because I am also thinking about how to help them build up their solutions as entrepreneurs. And so there's overlap in work that I do. And, and I think that diversity is a lot of fun too. Yeah. Yeah, I love your mentality. All right, now, what about the uh, flip side, though? What type of challenges are out there? I would probably argue that they're, they're challenges, but as an entrepreneur, I wouldn't be one. I didn't see them as opportunities as well. And so, for example, the systems that we see across health and social and others are siloed. So part of my work is as an opportunity at for those siloed systems to bring them together. Because in my experience, when they, when we have people with different expertise at the table, the solutions that we can create are that much more impactful. Street Crit's an example of that intersection of health and financial systems. Uh, Good Apple, the grocery delivery service on a mission and food insecurity that I mentioned. To get that started, uh, we've had to have partnerships farms with food banks and pantries, with private transportation companies, with the city of Austin, with the university, with philanthropists from both the private and public sectors. And so, so often those siloed systems can be a challenge, but I think it's an opportunity when they come together and we've had some evidence of, of how powerful those collaborations can be. I think the other challenge that we face often as entrepreneurs or, or even in general in our society is, is just this fear of change. People get comfortable and, and yet the opportunity is for us to paint a picture of what's possible that these longstanding social issues, for example, they can get better. That division in our country across the political spectrum, there are examples of how we can come together around common causes and rally. And so I think that that fear is certainly something that we've seen politicians in particular capitalize on from time and again. And yet, from my view, it's, it's an opportunity for us to talk about what our world could look like in different ways. There's a whole host of things from the pandemic that posed challenges to the organizations that, that I faced. And, and I'm really proud to say that because of the ingenuity of the student entrepreneurs that I work with, those challenges became really great opportunities to capitalize on. The namesake of the public policy school where I work, Lyndon B. Johnson, was famous for talking about how to capitalize on times of crisis. People are interested. People are engaged. So let's move the needle and capitalize on that energy to make some issue better than it was before. I like it. All right. Those challenges are just opportunities for you. Now, can you talk about some of your most memorable moments in your career that stick out to you? Well, on this theme of division in our country, I'll give you an example from an organization called Main Street Relief that I started with a few other very energetic and passionate people shortly after the pandemic struck. 
So my parents nowadays run a small business in rural Indiana. And when the pandemic struck, they were needing some help to apply for some of the federal loans, like the PPP and the EIDL that were available. And I was helping them and realized pretty quickly that it was pretty complicated stuff. The applications weren't clear. There was a lot of barrier along the way. And at the same time, I was having conversations with people from my business school class, from the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program and others who had some business expertise and were wanting to know how to get involved, how they could help. And so Main Street Relief matches people like my parents who were out there doing the good work, keeping their communities afloat with people like my classmates from the business school to help those small businesses navigate economic crises. Mm -hmm. And one of the unexpected things of this work, I mean, we've seen a lot of progress in the small businesses that we're helping. But one of the inspiring things for me was that often the people that we were connecting were from very different walks of life. And one example recently was of this rural Texas banker who was very conservative, who got matched with this very progressive graphic designer in downtown LA. People who in, in any other circumstance likely look at each other and make a lot of assumptions. And nowadays they're self-described best buddies. And they've had a chance to talk about things like the George Floyd trial or other divisive issues in the United States. And all of a sudden, some of those prejudices, some of those misunderstandings in both directions have gone to the wayside. Wow. And that, for me, gives me a lot of hope for the future of our country in this time where we see a lot of division. And yet so much of it is because people just haven't had a chance to get to know somebody right. who looks different, raise different, thinks different than they do. And it turns out that we've got a lot more in common than we do in our differences. And that's, I think, something for everybody to keep in mind as we, as we think about how to mend some of these divisions in this place we love. Yes. Yeah. But hopefully we see a lot more of that and, and that we do, like you say, mend a lot of these divisions that we see in, in America. But that is great. That's a great story. All right. So we're at the end of this interview, Michael. Want to see if you have anything additional that you would like to discuss or you feel like I might have left off any questions that I asked? I should have asked. I don't think so, Rodolfo. You covered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for the chance again to, to get to know you. I feel like it's been very one-sided. I want a chance to, to hear your stories and uh, maybe we'll have a chance to do that when we're not on the podcast here. Definitely. Yeah, I'll be making trips to UT in the future. I'm going to be on the advisory council for the College of Natural Sciences. So definitely we oh, have nice. a coffee or something. Yeah, I would love that. Well, congratulations on your on your board seat. And oh, yeah, thank you. Please reach out. I'd love to see you. All right. Great. So before we go, though, I want to see if we can go to this quick hitter session where I ask you questions for fun for people to get to know you a little bit better. Okay. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> so first one, what's your favorite sports team? Butler University basketball. Okay. My alma mater. Nice. All right. March Madness fan. <laughs> yeah. 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 How'd they do this year? I want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't either. Yeah, you know so. what? They, the, the team didn't, wasn't, in the, wasn't in the tournament, but oh, okay. uh, as you may know, the NCAA hosted all of March Madness in my home state of Indiana. Right. Right. So I'm very proud to see Hinkle Fieldhouse, which is our Oh. Arena, uh, on the on the big screen over and over and over again so very proud bulldog still that's awesome <laughs> favorite movie or show my favorite show is the west wing okay it's a, it's a classic my favorite yep. movie 
I mean, who doesn't love Forrest Gump? Let's right. <laughs> Classic, yes. That's right. Favorite musical artist or group? Oh, man. <laughs> I grew up loving Jack Johnson. Mm. And nowadays, I'm a big country fan. My wife got me into Texas country, which I didn't know was a separate thing from national country. And there's a band called Randy Rogers Band, which has become a, a big favorite of mine as well. Okay. And have you seen them perform? I have. I oh, okay, nice. College Station. Yeah. Great. Texas A&M in rival country. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now, uh, favorite vacation spot? Nowadays, it's probably home to Indiana. That's where all my family is. And it's been an extra fun now that we have a little one to take her back there and yeah. see my roots. My, my wife and I love to travel. We went to Japan on our honeymoon. Oh, nice. We're going to go to Europe here pretty soon and do a bit of that. So I was recently in the Florida Keys with my family, which was which was a lot of fun. So I'm partial to Indiana, though. Okay. Yeah, I like it. Florida Keys. I still haven't been there. I want to check it out. You got to do it. Well, I will. I will. Favorite food or drink? I'm going to go with sweet corn from Indiana. That's a big favorite. Uh, there's nothing better than sitting on the back porch at my parents' home, eating a big greasy burger and uh, some uh, some sweet corn from the fields nearby. That sounds um, good. Drink-wise, my wife makes fun of me, says I drink milk like a baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like old fashions if you're going to go down the alcohol route. That's a, that's, a, that's a favorite, too. That's my favorite also. So milk and old fashioned. All right. Right. I meant to ask you this earlier, but do you have any advice for people that just want to make a difference, want to make a difference in the environment, whether it's being an entrepreneur, just people that want to make a difference socially? I think the biggest piece of advice is to start now. Try something. Listen to the people who are facing the problems that you want to solve. Involve them in the building process of whatever it is, a product or a service, and do it now. I interact with a lot of students who are worried that they need to have a degree under their belt or on their wall. They need to have that extra class before they can go out and make the world a better place. And my experience tells me that that's, that's a bunch of baloney. People of all walks of life across the socioeconomic spectrum, across the education spectrum, from my view, are having impact on the lives of people who who need our help. So the problems are too big and too urgent to wait. So I guess the, the biggest advice is just do it. And if, if me or others out there who have, who've done it a couple more times before you uh, can be of help, I hope you'll be in touch. Great. Great. Good. Is there any way that people can contact you if they have any comments, questions or anything? Yeah. I mean, if you're the easiest way is probably to go to the impactfactory.org and to send a message through our contact page That'll eventually make its way to me and certainly uh, happy to chat with anybody who's excited to make the world a better place and who's fired up about entrepreneurship as a potential path to do so. Perfect. Thank you, Michael. This has been great. Learned a lot here and just amazed at all you do. I love all that you do for, for people, vulnerable people in Texas, whether it's in health and finance and other different ways, but also the things that you've done in the past too from, you know, from all over the world and Haiti and Uganda. So just congrats on all that you do. Thanks for all that you do, all the people that you impact. And thank you for coming on to this podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Rodolfo. You're welcome. All right. Well, have a good one and hook them.
That's right, sir. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Please do reach out when you're, when you're nearby and yeah, this was, this was fun. And thanks for the opportunity. No problem. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Thank you everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.